0: is Rising podcast. This is episode number 26 and this podcast is all about being an awesome, extraordinary coach. Each time I'm going to be speaking with experts and master coaches about yeah, what does it take to be an extraordinary coach. So today, what are we going to explore? Well, we're going to be speaking with Mandy Blake and I really love what Mandy's up to. She's an expert on neuroscience and that's what we're going to talk about today, the neuroscience of change. What is the neuroscience behind? How our brain and our bodies get shaped and affect the the possibilities of what we can see and do? And how can we leverage that same process to then help our clients transform? And we're going to explore a really cool distinction that mandy introduced me to i think she got it from alan fogel and it's this distinction between conceptual self awareness and embodied self awareness we're going to explore what are the characteristics of these two types of awareness and why are they so important to coaching how can we how can we harness them to empower our coaching so as i shared mandy is an expert on the neuroscience of change She's a coach. Uh, She's author of the recent book, Your Body is Your Brain, which is getting some great reviews, and I really liked it. I recommend you check that out. And she has a course with the same name, which is also fantastic. If you are inspired to do so, I would love it if you would share this podcast. Uh, My my passion and my mission is to have as many coaches as possible benefit from the wisdom that the, the people in it are sharing. You can share it by heading to coachesrising.com forward slash podcast and then you'll find all the individual podcast pages and when you go into one of those on there you'll find these share buttons and if you just click on that you can share it via LinkedIn or Facebook or you could also leave a rating or review in iTunes. Let's dive in. I'm joined today by Amanda Blake. How are you doing Mandy? How's things?
1: Uh, Great. I'm so happy to be here and talking to you today Joel.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I think this is maybe our third or fourth conversation over the years. And uh, that's cool. And I'm excited because you had this uh, book out recently, Your Body is Your Brain. And I've been reading that I'm really enjoying it. And of course, it's packed full of um, great stuff for coaches. So we're going to explore some of the big ideas in that book today. Fantastic so so let's dive in i'd love to start by reading something that you wrote because it really captured my attention and I think it will speak to uh, you know a lot about uh, what the book is about and, and speak to the coaches too so you wrote "The body is a finely tuned social and emotional sense organ shaped by life, and that shaping affects both the possibilities you see and the actions you take It results in almost every area of life are subtly but inescapably influenced by the characteristics and qualities you've come to embody. And so I think that's um, a really important statement that captures a lot of the power in working in an embodied way. So, so perhaps you could um, speak into that a little bit. I'm just going to put you on the hot seat and see where you take us
1: well great um yeah it's interesting to hear my own words read back to me um because i recognize all that it's very familiar and at the same time there's something in me going oh i said that that's that's not half bad like <laughs> that makes sense um so i i think that probably two things stood out to me about that passage one is um Or maybe three. One is that our body is our social and emotional sense organ. Um, And so I'll come back to that. The the second thing that really stands out to me is that 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 social and emotional sense organ is shaped by the life that we've lived. Now, there's science behind both of those things and biology behind both of those statements, but the, the short version is our bodies are function kind of as an antenna and pick up signals all the time and um, emanate signals all the time about our emotional state and our relational um, exchanges and uh, all of that is very much shaped by the the life that that we've lived and then the third thing that really s- stood out to me is um, said something in there about how that shaping then goes on to. Fr- to affect our, both our perceptions and the actions that we take, what we can see as, as Hmm. possibilities, um, and what we sometimes can't see as possibilities and, and the actions that we go on and take. And, you know, as, as a coach, I know, um, I know many of us as coaches, have this experience of seeing possibilities for our clients that they themselves cannot see. And, um, sometimes all it takes is just saying, hey, there's a possibility over here. And sometimes you talk to your client and you go, I see this possibility and they go, that's not possible for me. Or I don't don't see that. Or "Um, that seems impossible. And some of the reason that those possibilities will become invisible to us is because of how this social and emotional sense organ that is our body is shaped by our life experience. It makes certain certain things invisible to us. Um, it makes other things, you know, conversely, very easily accessible. Um, uh, so I feel like I'm speaking a little bit in the abstract Mm. now, but that's Joel, what was standing out to me. And I'm curious what your response is to that.
0: Yeah, great. So I, uh, I think it's really worth taking the podcast, our conversation today to unpack this, uh, this process of how we become embodied, and then how we can uh, help our clients to to live into those new possibilities, because that's why people come into coaching. Um, so perhaps you could talk about the the kind of uh, biological process, because I think this you know we can geek out a little bit in the neuroscience as well, perhaps, because um, I think it's been really important for me to understand some of how, um, our kind of biological nervous system develops and, and takes on these, um, you know, these, this shaping. So what, what, what's like important for coaches to know about that kind of, um, you know, biological neurological process, where would you start when you would explain that to them? Well,
1: First, I'll come back to this, this idea that, that your body is your social and emotional sense organ. Um, so I first arrived at this idea looking at the process of biological evolution. And what we see is that you know, when, when neuroscientists are looking at, and biologists of any kind are looking at how the human organism evolved over time, um, in context of evolution of other species on our planet, what, what you find is that, you know, starting with sort of the single cell that um, moves towards food and moves away from, you know, say a pin, if you can see this on, on a microscope, if, if you float a pin towards a single celled organi- organism, it will contract away from that danger. And similarly, it will move itself toward nourishment. That is just a, a uh, you know, life moving through material form in an intelligent way. And it happens at the level of single cell and it happens at the level of tri- the trillions and trillions and trillions of cells that we are. And um, so, so starting there, as evolution progressed, um, the nervous system and the brain really evolved to move towards nourishment and away from, you know, um, danger, we could say. And, and um, it, it, it evolved to do that in a number of different ways, but as different species evolved over time, I talk about this in the book, you know, um, uh, that we, we had this capacity for sensation and motion that would, um, you know, people talk about the lizard brain. brains, a very significant oversimplification, but we can say like reptiles had a certain behavioral response in the face of, of danger, and it was fairly limited. They can freeze or run away or sometimes fight if they're large enough reptiles, right? And so that, that kind of got wired in as an emotional and um, uh, sort of behavioral response to safety and, and danger. And as mammals came along, Uh, mammals need to feed their live young, right, in order to support their their young. And this capacity for emotional communication through sound and gesture and facial expression, it came onto the scene, right, with Mm -hmm. mammalian life. And then as um, mammals started to gather into more and more complex social groups, um, what happened, interestingly, is is the neocortex part of the brain um, got more and more dense, so more and more cells per you know square centimeter square inch um, uh, in those animals that are a part of social groups and um, uh, so for those animals the the brains and nervous system kind of evolved to help them navigate social life so theres, there's we, we, you know sort of the shorthand version is we developed ways of physically moving. Towards or away from pleasure or pain um, nourishment or danger that uh, are emotionally based and socially based and that is wired into our nervous system so all the way out to our fingers and toes the nerves our cells are always telling us about our emotional response to the world about our relational response to the world and that's just built into the human system so we're not neuroscientists. We don't need to understand this at, you know, a super deep, deep level, sort of geeking out about the biology. But I think that understanding that our physical organism evolved to be essentially an antenna for reading um, uh, emotional and sort of social situations is really critical. And then what happens to... Well, I can pause there, Joel, and see if you have questions about that. But I was going to go on and talk about, well, here's what happens to us each as individuals as we get shaped throughout our, our individual lives. Um, but is there is there anything you want to ask before I kind of jump into that?
0: Well, just a comment, really, just that, wow, when you talk about it on that level, you know, I see how much those dynamics, that pleasure-pain principle, the need for emotional contact and communication and social belonging how much they play out in my life you know and the things that I struggle with and my coaching clients struggle with so I just see the relevancy for those kind of principles um you know to to this world of coaching so yeah that's just a comment and I'd love to hear about what you were just going to share as well
1: yeah let me add one other thing because I think it's uh you know, it's actually one of the most – you saying that makes me think, well, right. So in the in the Body Equals Brain course that I teach, I teach a course um, uh, about all of these topics and how to apply them in, in your coaching. And one of the most popular concepts that I teach in that program is this concept around essential nutrients that we need as humans. And that comes straight out of this idea that the body is a social and emotional sense organ designed to optimize for, um, uh, you know, kind of relational connection and safety. And I talk about these these nutrients, safety, connection, and respect, as really essential, like our nervous system is always automatically trying to optimize for those three things, um, safety, connection, and Respect. And again, those come straight out of evolutionary history. And um, what we see is that then in people's individual lives, right, we're born into some cultural environment, some familial environment, um, and we have some temperament that we come in with, right? Some, um, you know, some babies are quite quiet and mellow. Some babies are maybe a little more colicky, um, some babies are very alert. Some babies are more sleepy. So we come in with some kind of temperament and we get plopped into this particular environment. And, you know, listeners may have heard of like the fourth trimester, right? That there's this period um, of rapid growth and development in the, in the first three months of life. And that rapid growth and development continues um, uh, throughout our lifetime, maybe not as rapidly, right? So very early in life, maybe up to kind of pre-adolescence, what we're doing is making all these synaptic connections in the brain and the nervous system as a whole, so wired throughout the whole body, um, in ways that that shape our behavior to optimize access to safety, connection, and respect based on our own temperament and the environment in which we find ourselves, right? And we start to wire this stuff up, wire it up, wire it up. And then in adolescence, um, we, so in childhood, we just do this tremendous amount of making connections. And it's happening on a physical level, right? Neurons are talking to new neurons. New neurons are being born. Um, there's uh, just this, this period of what neuroscientists call um, experience-dependent development. And the brain, um, which is the least differentiated organ at birth, meaning Like your hand pretty much looks like your hand, right? An infant's hand is a little smaller, but by the time they're adult, you know, the hand is still the hand. Your brain changes more than any other organ between infancy and adulthood. And and that set of changes uh, has repercussions throughout the entire nervous system and throughout your entire body. And so what happens is we wire in the behaviors that sort of optimize for these what I call essential nutrients. And um, those behaviors, you know, work more or less well in our lives as young people, um, but nevertheless, they got us here, right, to today. But we we outgrow the situations that we were living in early in life. We go off to have new adventures and, um, you know, maybe travel and live in a different country or... Um, move away from our family and start a career in an organization that's really different from the community that we grew up in or whatever, right? We, we could stay right at home and still be in a completely new situation as an adult. So the world around us changes, but we are, we have physically wired in certain kinds of behavior, behavioral um, responses to the world. And in doing that, it's sort of as I was saying earlier, um, some behavioral responses seem, uh, uh, really available to us and others seem more invisible to us. Right? So for some people, the really available behavior will be, Hey, you cross me, you're going to hear about it. Like I, I will, um, you know, I will step up and say, don't, you know, don't pass this boundary. That's totally unacceptable. Um, I can actually contrast myself with one of my roommates in college who absolutely had that in her and anything that sort of was in any way threatening for her, she, her immediate default behavioral response was like, nope, you're not going there, you know, forget about it. Whereas for me, I, you know, my life shaped me, um, up until that point in my adulthood to, if, if somebody was kind of pushing boundaries for me, I would be like, not say anything for a while. And then maybe I would say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a little uncertain about this, but maybe you could, you know, stop doing that thing that bothers me just a little bit, even if it was like really a huge problem for me, right? And what was invisible to me at the time was how to have just a very direct conversation about how I'm being impacted by your behavior. For my college roommate, what was invisible to her at the time was how to have A really direct conversation in a way that was um, respectful and kind rather than kind of slamming and, and, I don't know, uh, I mean, she didn't ever intend to kind of Mm. trample on anyone, right? That was never her intention, but she could be very forceful and strong. Mm. And so, you know, we grow into our adult selves, um, or in this case that I'm talking about our young adult selves, and we have certain behavioral habits. And then those may serve us really well as we go on in life, but sometimes we're reaching for something, right? As coaches, we're working with clients who are reaching for something different and their current behaviors typically are not what's going to get them to the point where there's that something different. And that's why understanding this process of embodiment is so important for us as coaches because it's invisible, but it's happening in all of us all the time.
0: Beautiful, beautifully explained. So um, I'd like to go deeper into how we can harness the body. Like how would you coach someone like yourself in that situation to begin to be able to be clearer about your boundaries? Because, you know, so far, like what, what I love about this is it gives a very kind of um, uh, neurological kind of embodied uh, understanding to the idea of conditioning that we you know, grow up and we have certain conditioned responses, which I think is an idea that's quite familiar to coaches. But often coaches won't know about how that com- becomes embodied. And so let's talk about that a little bit. Um, why is it, maybe, maybe we've already made the case for why it's important to include the body in change, but how would you begin to help somebody to make an embodied shift
1: yeah, I will. Um, what's coming to mind as you're asking that question is, is a specific client that I worked with who was um, dealing with some boundary issues with her mother. So she um, was in a situation where um, she had actually come to me because she was having boundary issues at work. And she really wanted to figure out like, how can I consistently leave my my job at 5 p.m. because I'm 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 not doing it, and I'm sort of overly responsible. And I, uh, if somebody else is dropping the ball, I'll always be the one to pick it up. And so we were working really from a work perspective. Um, and as we were working together, her mother reached a health crisis, an unexpected health crisis. And this person had had a long history with her mother of, you know, having a challenging time saying, um, you know, no and making space for herself in her relationship with her mother. And um, this wound up, because it was such a significant um, thing going on in her life, it wound up being sort of a proxy for, you know, how, how can you build boundaries in your life overall? And because this was the hot issue for her, we we sort of shifted from paying attention to work to paying attention to this particular relationship and um, as a way of just developing the skill. And what we did together um, was there were probably two or three significant things that helped her make some more space, both in her relationship with her mother and at at work. Um, One was for her to get really... You know, as we do as coaches, really clear on why it was important to her, and one of the reasons to do that um, is that when uh, when we're emotionally connected to a reason for doing something, we actually learn it better, and that just kind of makes intuitive sense. But it's also true that when our emotions are aroused, certain neurotransmitters are released in the brain. Um, you know when a positive emotion is aroused, dopamine is one of the uh, neurotransmitters that will be released in the brain and um, learning takes place more effectively in the presence of dopamine. It'll just happen faster like the physical process of learning, the wiring up of neurons, etc cetera, etc cetera. so um, so it's really you know she got really clear about why it was important for her to have this more space and um, and then what we did was w- two things one is we started to have her pay attention to when she was taking care of her mother and sort of the 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 primary practical and emotional tasks had been handled um and she needed to go home and be with her uh partner or go away and just spend some time by herself to sort of recharge as a caregiver um she i had her really pay attention to what her physical sensations were on the inside as she was negotiating that moment with her mother of of leaving the house right cuz always her mother would be like hey i want you to stay and oh i just have this one more thing and usually it was unimportant stuff right and she had maybe been there all day and it was really okay to leave now and so um you know, I had her really pay attention to how her body responded. And one of the things that she would find is that she would tighten down, uh, if, if I re- recall this client correctly, um, that she would tighten down in her chest and in her jaw. Right? So, kind of locking up her ability to say anything, and in some ways, locking up her, her ability to feel care so that was the first thing is having her really pay attention to like what was her physical response in the moment and then the other thing that we did is we had her develop a really simple mantra and a really simple movement that um, embodied what it was that she wanted to move towards and what we came up with together was she had a rolling chair in her office and um, she would stand behind the chair. And literally, physically push the chair away from her so that she could make more physical space around her body. And she would say the words, "Mom, I have to go now," or "Mom, I'm leaving now." Right? I don't remember exactly what the words were, but it was something like that. Something that sort of embodied her, uh, sort of what she was up to now, with it sort of the behavior that she wanted to take. So she would. Um, speak those words aloud, push her chair away from her, and really pay attention to what was going on in her chest area and in her jaw, those areas, those two areas that would get tight, right, that she knew about from exploration um, previously. And over time, as she practiced this, and she would practice this on her own, right, and she'd maybe practice in the morning, and then she'd go take care of her mother. And then maybe when saying goodbye to her mother for the day, she would stand behind a chair and put her hands on the chair. It might not be a rolling chair, but she would have that muscle memory in her body. Or, and then she could say aloud, Mom, I'm going now. I'll see you tomorrow. And her mother would be like, Oh, blah, 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 blah. I'm going now. Right? So, in this relationship where there was a very long standing, pretty challenging dynamic of her creating boundaries for herself and, and really struggling to do that. Um, That started to change during this terminal illness and towards the end of her mother's life. And then as our work together wound down, we were able to kind of circle back to the work scenario and start to look at that again in, you know, through this lens and be able to go, okay, so when you're at work, can you at five o'clock sort of push the chair away from you, make some space for yourself and say, I'm going now. And um, that was the practice. So that's just an example, an illustration of one way that this can work is paying attention to sensations on the inside and giving the client somewhere else, literally somewhere else to move to.
0: Hmm. Because I can imagine, you know, from a lot of people, they don't have any, I think you call this interoceptive awareness, yeah, internal an internal sense of their their body and their mood and their emotions. And I guess it goes back to that, that statement at the beginning, you know, a finely tuned social and a, emotional sense organ. Um, you know, in many ways that the sensing is unconscious, yeah. Like for, for, in, in these areas where we're conditioned. And so is that right? You're trying to kind of, um, inc- bring, bring, more uh, of the embodied conditioning into the awareness by by sensitizing the sensing
1: exactly Joel and uh, you know <clears throat> that word interoception that's not my word that is uh you know the the word used by the uh the professionals in the field, the neuroscientists out there who are really looking at how the nervous system works, and what we know is that there are, there are several classes of sensations, so we tend to think we have five senses and we do, and all of those fall into a really Um, specific category that's about paying attention to the world outside our skin, and that's called exteroception. Interoception is um, the information that we get from our visceral senses, and it does primarily happen on an unconscious level. Most of the time we are not aware of it. That is by biological design, and we also have a lot of cultural messages that have us deliberately move our attention away from our interoceptive sense. It's one of the reasons when you know, you ask yourself or or suggest to someone to pay attention inside, we close our eyes or we want to go to a place that is um, quiet, right? Not necessarily in a coffee shop. And the reason that's our instinct is those interoceptive nerve cells are smaller and operate a little bit more slowly than the exteroceptive nerve cells that are paying attention, helping us pay attention outside our bodies. The world around us changes quickly, right? And so we can it's it's biologically adaptive to put those internal sensations on autopilot as much as we can. But what's really interesting is that the research shows that as we bring those those interoceptive sensations into our awareness de- deliberately. So, like I did with this client, helping her um, kind of designing, in a sense, an observation practice for her where she could notice. In uh, exchanges with her mother, what are her physical sensations and how do those arise and what's the pattern of that? When we um, uh, raise what's what's known as our embodied self-awareness, when we deliberately develop that and bring it into conscious awareness, that has been shown to be associated with a whole host of benefits that have us really at our at our best as humans. It's, it's associated with a stronger emotional regulation. It's associated with greater uh, emotional intelligence. It's associated with stronger empathy. Um, and there's a whole, a whole long list of uh, stronger intuition, better decision-making, a whole long list of benefits of developing embodied self-awareness. So when we learn to pay attention to those visceral sensations that are normally held outside of our conscious awareness, we literally get more intelligent. And we get more intelligent in the social and emotional sphere.
0: Mm. Nice. Um, so I want to... You know, I'm going to bookmark the idea of embodied self-awareness because I think that's an important concept to define as, um, as 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 uh, we I, I, I use the word opposed, but not really opposed, conceptual self-awareness. But let's just stay with this example um, that you shared before we do that. So, so this lady was developing her, um, you know, this capacity to sense into her body and to be able to um, connect to what's important and to be able to, you know, develop a new practice by moving and this mantra. So could you share a little bit about what's happening there or what happened for her? Like, is it, let me, let me give you an example. Is it that, um, you know, she's disrupting this, this kind of, this condition tendency to, to take care or is it that, um you know through awareness there's something that, that that kind of dissolves and lets go like the you know i'm guess i'm getting at it there is like what's what's that mechanism that's happening as she's doing these practices
1: yeah yeah well there's um there're two things going on and you kind of pointed to both of them so there there is um a disruption one of the things when you are when you're looking at behavioral patterns that are sort of automatic and unconscious it's really it's um, critical to interrupt those to to help your client learn how to catch themselves in the in the act and interrupt that the automaticity um, I call that disruption it's called different things in different traditions but that's what I that's sort of my name for it um, and and really the the purpose there is <clears throat> because we have these sort of emotional behavioral habits wired in um, when, when we go and try to do something different, unless we disrupt, interrupt, um, learn how to, as one uh, friend and colleague calls it, learn how to catch ourselves in the act, right? Catch ourselves being ourselves until until we can do that. um, Those patterns will almost always prevail. Because they're automatic, because they have developed over time, and because they're wired in and they're on autopilot, right? So it's really critical to disrupt them. And one of the ways to disrupt uh, a pattern is to simply um, really raise awareness of it kind of on all channels, right? So what's the physicality of the pattern? What's the, um, you know, what's the client saying to themselves about about it in the moment, um, or even what's the lens they're looking through right there might not be any sort of words associated with it but what's their basic orientation or assumption or lens they're looking through what's the what's the mood or emotion that goes along with this behavior and really really getting to know on a fine level of detail what's going on there and then what doing so so paying attention can help with that process of disruption but one of the things that's really um critical is to have a practice that interrupts and has you take a different action. And that's what this like pushing the chair practice that I talked about. Um, that's what that was doing. It was both interrupting the habitual behavior and simultaneously building a new skill, a new behavior, a new way of being. And so there's, there's a dual role for, Um, interrupting the old behavior and building a new skill or a new um, behavior um, simultaneously. And what's been um, shown interestingly in in research, um, not just with humans, but with like uh, snails and rats, (laughs) is that um, learned emotional memories can be interrupted and replaced if there's this process of, surfacing the old um, kind of emotional memory and simultaneously taking a different action um, that, that has, that essentially has the organism, the body of the self learn something new, right? Learn that, um, uh, learn that it's safe to have your own voice. Right. So you don't go practice that in the room with your boss who shuts down your voice every single time you talk. Right. You find a place to practice that where somebody is actually uh, listening to you. Maybe your coach, maybe, you know, your coach helps you practice that with your spouse or somebody else in your life who is safe, safe person with whom to have your own voice and you you start to raise the awareness of how you've shut down your own voice and, and simultaneously take action to have your own voice and your body learns something new. Oh, it's actually safe here. So going back to those essential nutrients, safety, connection, and respect. um, It's like you're, there needs to be a physical learning that the new behavior is possible. This Mm -hmm. is what we're talking about with possibilities, right?
0: It, beautiful. It reminds me a bit of um, I know maybe this is not the same thing that you're talking about now, but unlocking the emotional brain, which is a book you put me onto, where they talk about this potential even to erase conditioning um, through simultaneously moving back and forth between um, between you know the the experience of something which we might call negative and then a positive. Kind of um, variant of that Um, is it? Is it just completely different? Or
1: no, this is exactly the same. It is in in fact that the research that is um, shared, Bruce and his co-authors share in in that book, Unlocking the Emotional Brain, which I highly recommend. Yeah,
0: yeah, because I mean, what what I love about that is that in a way, I grew up with this idea that um, you know that it's it's like through effort and work, I can learn to kind of have control over my conditioning and that that's the kind of pinnacle of, of like where I can get, you know, like kind of taming the animal or something, but actually, you know, evidence suggests we can erase that completely erase that conditioning and and have completely new possibilities, which feels much more, um, what's the word? I don't know, like liberating.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think so. So with the caveat that um, that's not easy, but it can be easier than you think if you're using um, if you're using the right process and the process that has been shown to work is this process of simultaneously activating the old pattern and taking a new action. And it really needs to happen. There, there are some, you know, kind of specific parameters in which it needs to happen. But the even if you don't hit every one of those specific Parameters, you can help your client go so much farther from where they have been simply by uh, being able to um, interrupt and take a new action at, at the same time. And I think it is really hopeful, Joel. I think we can change more than we think we can. Um, where we're dedicated and where it matters to us, but it does take practice. It's not a one-time thing. And it's not something that we bust through with Mm -hmm. willpower or that we achieve through good new ideas. Right. It really takes the action of enacting it. And that's why it's just, it's not optional to address the body in coaching. It's not like an extra add on. Nice to have. I, I believe, you know, it really. the, the deepest rooted places where our clients are stuck are embodied. Yeah.
0: I mean, I get that now, you know, it's been quite some years since I was introduced to an embodied approach and I could not work in a way that wasn't embodied with my clients. In fact, I, I always kind of was in a sense, but uh, cause, cause they are embodied beings, but I just didn't, um, it wasn't conscious to me and it wasn't a possibility in my coaching And, um, and therefore like my coaching felt very limited compared to what's possible now. So, and I think, you you know, this point you brought up about willpower, because I, I often wonder about this and maybe I'm going to answer my own question, but it's like, you know, is the change process about self-awareness, you know, like this idea of the paradoxical nature of change, which is like, you know, if we try to change things, that's often coming from the sense of lack and so, you know, through awareness, loving awareness, we come to accept ourselves and um, maybe these certain patterns let go. Or is there some element of will needed, you know, like an action or a practice? It's just kind of what we're saying, too. But where does the, that practice become, um, you know, something I'm just um, doing to layer over the top of this pain or um to not really feel it you know it's like i'm resisting or bypassing or something
1: yeah i mean i think that's i think that is sort of in popular culture the world at large i think that is the default mode is like i want to do something new so i'm going to just you know start doing something new right and power through it and make it happen and and then like things get a little hard and we default back to the old pattern and it's just You know that is a very natural and i would argue in in many uh ways a biologically adaptive process right it's part of our intelligence that those patterns developed in response to something to keep us safe connected and and respected as optimally as we were able and um so it just makes sense that that you know when we start down a path to develop something new unless we're also interrupting uh, the old, it's just not going to take root in the same, in the same way. Um, but, but I do believe, you know, and you were pointing to this, that there is a really important role for, for the will. So my, um, kind of catchphrase, uh, around this that I came up with years ago in a conversation with a friend of, of mine, um, we were, well, the story doesn't matter, but it was one of those moments where I had this big epiphany and I just, it just came out of me. I said, oh my gosh, you know, awareness creates choice, but practice creates capacity. And I think what happens is we will often raise awareness about our problem and then we'll say, oh, we have a choice about it. But it is very hard to enact that choice unless we've been practicing something different. And so that for me has been a touchstone. It's one of the guides that I use for how I work with my clients. Awareness creates choice, practice creates capacity. And, and I try always to help my clients both develop their awareness um, in, a, uh, in an embodied way as well as, you know, you pointed to conceptual self-awareness earlier. Maybe I'll return to that in a moment here. Um, but I really help uh, clients develop awareness on uh, sort of all channels, if you will. And and then I help them have something to practice, something different to move towards. And in my view, that needs to be an experiential practice, um, not just journaling, although journaling can be really helpful, not just sitting on a meditation cushion, although that can also be enormously valuable for people, but actually doing some form of um, physical shift and it might be a physical shift that you can see like pushing a chair away or it might be a physical shift that no one else notices but that you feel inside like unclenching your stomach
0: mm. right
1: so it, it doesn't have to be necessarily a, a a physical practice that everyone else can can see or that's visible it could be as simple as you know lowering your chin by a centimeter Right. It could be that that small, or even half a centimeter. You know, it could be that small, but um, uh, but it is something physical that you practice over time. That is that is tied to the outcome you want, the behavior you want, the change you want. That is tied to what you care about, right? And and that I believe is what creates the capacity to exercise the choice that you've developed by raising your awareness. Mm.
0: Let's, let's just, just, let's, I want to talk more about that. You know, how do we clarify what this kind of embodied practice could be dependent on what we care about, but let's define these terms, conceptual self-awareness and embodied self-awareness. Cause I, I loved, I, when I first uh, did your course and came across those, it, it helped me so much. And I feel like the place where these two meet um, is incredibly potent where embodied self-awareness and self-concept uh, uh, conceptual self-awareness in our clients meet is very potent. So could you tell me what each of those is?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I owe a great debt of gratitude to my friend and colleague, Alan Fogel, who um, was the first person I know who articulated these differences really clearly. And he's the author of a book called The, Psychophysiology of self-awareness. I think it's now um, published under the name Body Sense, and um, he's a psychotherapist at the University of Utah and um, <clears throat> in Salt Lake City. And he um, and he's also a body worker. And and what the the way that he defines these um, these two different modes of self-awareness. One thing to understand is that they're anatomically and physiologically different. So there's different underlying neural structures and and, um, muscular structures that are involved in conceptual self-awareness versus embodied self-awareness. Conceptual self-awareness involves face, head, and neck, uh, speech centers, uh, hearing, um, auditory centers in the brain, right? Whereas embodied self-awareness... Um, is an experience all the way out to our fingers and toes, and it involves uh, organs and muscles throughout the whole body. Um, it involves uh, areas in the brain. Um, both of these kinds of self awareness uh, touch on the insula, which is really an important part of the brain that's involved in self awareness. Um, embodied self awareness also includes. Obviously, the sensory motor cortex in the brain, the, um, something called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is involved in um, kind of parsing sensation, sort of making sense of the meaning of sensation. Um, so, um, you know, Alan's work is really, um, he's done some really nice technical work on kind of the neurobiology of these two different states of awareness and the experience of these two different states of awareness. So conceptual self-awareness is really, you know, we're thinking about our life history or our story or, you know, a memory or um, your address or where you live. It's, it's, it's conceptual, right? Logical, conceptual, uh, it's abstract, embodied self-awareness is a felt sense awareness and i mean any listeners can get a sense of it right now by just noticing where their left foot is in relation to their right ear right you don't have to look in fact you can't look at your right ear but you can feel where your right ear is and where your left foot is and you know the relationship between those two Through your felt sense. That's embodied. That is one aspect of embodied self awareness. And um, it's a complex concept. It can actually be broken down into a number of different um, uh, sort of, um, what do I want to say, levels, maybe you might call them. I'm not sure that's the best term, but Alan and I have been in conversation about you know, different, different modes of embodied self-awareness. Um, but one thing that is common between all of the modes of embodied self-awareness is that you have a, a physical felt sense, knowing it is experiential, it is sensory. Um, and uh, it's, it's just a knowing on a different level. And it gives us, as I said before, it gives us this access to intelligence that's always operating, but that mostly is happening outside of our conscious awareness and then we don't tap it, and we don't get the benefit of it. So, um, yeah, let me pause there and see what
0: else, Joel. Well, just to speak about that felt knowing, because I think that's significant because I, um, almost always now introduce that concept to my clients early on because If they find it incredibly helpful to include both this conceptual way of thinking about the world and this felt sense of knowing, which I, you know, I'm quite a sort of, in some ways, I have a big passion for spirituality. And I think it's this felt sense of knowing is deep, you know, and I could talk about that for a long time. But, um, you know, if we just have this Conceptual self-awareness is conceptual knowing. It has many gifts, but for me, often um, it has some drawbacks, like this kind of over-analyzing or kind of trying to grasp the world into a into a simplistic, com- you know, um, kind of uh, idea. And 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 it, and it and suffers through that, you know, trying to work out what the right thing to do is or the different permutations of a situation and. Um, and this felt sense of knowing can often give us this real clarity about making decisions about what's most important to me right now, what's happening, what what do I want, what's the next step? You know, it can give um, it can add so much nuance and depth to that to those questions. You know, so um, and but so many people just never really give that any attention. And when they do, they're like, oh, my God, like, yeah, I can actually begin to feel this and then, and then begin to trust it in, a, in something that will guide me.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. Um, wow, there's a lot in there that I want to respond to. So one so is you, you could kind of made reference earlier to, like, this conceptual self-awareness and embodied self-awareness being in opposition, and then you were like, no, that's not quite right. And I just want to say, like, that's not right. They're caught co- They're. I wouldn't even mm. call them complimentary. They're um, uh, they're part of an interwoven whole of what it means to be human. And we are very much um, trained from a very young age to sit still in school and pay attention to the contents of our minds. And as you say, that has just so many gifts. I would never throw that away. I'm the biggest nerd out there <laughs> um, and I love it, you know? I, and and the fact that we have these incredible um, uh, intellect and incredible capacity for knowing ourselves on an abstract level or knowing things about the world on an abstract level, its it's extraordinary. You know, as far as we know, uh, there's no other animal on earth who really does that in the in the way that we do. and it's quite a gift. Um, and we have also this embodied way of knowing. And you made reference to um, your deep interest in spirituality. We've had conversations about that before and what, here's here's what I have come to understand through my own Uh, journey of discovering my own embodied knowing is that when we learn to tap into our felt sense knowing, fundamentally what we are doing, so I could talk about this in in neurobiological terms right we're tuning into the to the metabolic processes and the way that energy moves through your biological organism. we could talk about it in very materialistic terms like that but really really what i think we're doing is um we're feeling the life force energy that pulses through us all the time every day 24 7 for as long as we have breath and there is, that is the deepest intelligence there is. You know, we, we as far as we know, um, af- each one of us, after we take our last breath, will no longer have sensation to guide us, right? We'll never, no, no longer have that. And our feeling of sensation is a very direct way of knowing that life that is pulsing through us. And for me, you know, regardless of any particular um, religious upbringing or particular or, or commitment or story, for me, that, that direct knowing of life is deeply spiritual.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I fundamentally agree. And actually, to I think it goes all the way down and all the way up in some ways, all the way down to this materialistic aspect of us, this biological, neurological aspect to us and all the way up into, you know, this kind of this life energy that animates us and is highly relevant for things like leadership in these times. You know, if I'm able to sense into my experience to feel into my experience to have that information that i find there guide me and actually live as that as well because in a way we're talking about it in a kind of dualistic sense like i i sense that information but in some ways it is who i am and can can guide us in a very practical way in our leadership um, in our organizations in our communities then i think that's um Highly relevant for these times as well in, in in meeting the complexity and the uncertainty that we can develop our capacity to be with the in like experiential intensity of the moment so so that 's what comes up in response and um, i don 't know if you want to share anything because i i'd like to add something to this part of the conversation too, but is there anything you want to say in response to that
1: The only thing that I want to say about that specifically is um, that I agree, first of all, and that that leadership is, um, the act of leadership is an act of creating the future. And when we are tapped into life, we have a much stronger possibility, a much stronger chance of creating a future that is uh, life honoring, life giving and life generating and when we are not tapped into life we are not connected to the way that that intelligent life force moves through our physical bodies um we have a much stronger chance as leaders of doing harm to ourselves right through whatever kind of overwork or um you know there are plenty of leaders out there who have experiences of their relationships falling apart because they're overly um dedicated to whatever it is they're doing in the world um and, and we and we may do harm in the world in ways that we don't intend including you know uh, anything from the very personal like i just mentioned all the way up to environmental destruction um you know uh and and uh Sort of conflict between nations and war. Um, when, I'm not saying that's the only cause of those things, but when we are disconnected from life, we are far more likely to dishonor life. When mm. we are connected to life, we are far more likely to take action in a way that's life generating. And I think that is crucial for leaders in our times.
0: Mm. Well, you just mentioned leadership as as kind of creating the future. And actually, that's what I wanted to bring up next, because you said um, this conceptual self-awareness takes you anywhere in time and embodied self-awareness brings you into this moment in time. And I think that's really, really important for me, because the intersection there is incredibly potent. It's something I'm working with all the time in my coaching, in that and this, again, you know, it, it highlights the kind of the very uh, material or biological, neurological aspect of our conversation, but also the spiritual in the sense of, you know, the, all we have is this moment in time. And the rest is a concept in a sense. You know, it's good to plan and think about our futures, but in some ways they're just ideas <laughs> about a potential future. So where I like to go in my coaching is to, to have people consider to dream to connect to what is this future that they are they are longing to create and then to see how it that shows up in this moment as they consider that as they dream as they as they imagine how does it impact them in an embodied way it in the moment and how does it begin to even shape them and um Con, you know, condition them in the moment. And I find that incredibly powerful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, what's coming to mind for me um, is a is a really beautiful <clears throat> exercise that um, was shared with me originally by my friend and colleague, Ginny Whitelaw. She's the author of Move to Greatness and the Zen Leader. And she does a lot of work in this realm of um, embodied leadership as well. And Um, there are many exercises like this out there, but I just want to share this one for listeners that I think, you know, you can play around with, with your clients and and just see, um, what happens. So you, so I've done this where I have clients, um, stand in a room and essentially make for themselves a timeline. You can either, you can put a piece of tape down if you want, but you know, like one end of the room is your history and one side of the room is, is your future. And kind of to be able to engage your conceptual self-awareness and remembering some of where you've come from and what has brought you to this point. So go ahead and stand on the timeline of where you are today, right? And, you know, if you're 30 years old, we're going to imagine that you're maybe a little closer to the birth end of your timeline than than if you're 60 years old. So find, you know, in this space where you stand today. And and you can turn around and look at your timeline and look at your history and look at your past and sort of see in your mind's eye, in your conceptual self-awareness, some of what's built you, what has built your strengths, um, as well as what has contributed to the limitations that you may see yourself as having now. But really, like, what's built your strengths? Who, 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 who has helped you become who you are today? Um, and then to turn around and face the future of your timeline and face your longings and your desire or your vision or your conceptual idea, right? Sort of floating anywhere in time. And, and see in your mind's eye that vision um, alive and completed if it has a point of completion or living if it has a point of um, sort of ongoing arrival, right? And you can see that in some physical position on your timeline. And then uh, make some steps towards that point on your timeline where this is already completed. Frankly, I did this when I was writing my book. And, And I just got into a place where I was like, you know, the book is already completed. I'm just living my way into that moment. Um, and it's, it's out there completed somewhere on the timeline. And if you can have your, hold your vision that way, like this vision is realized, and I'm walking my way into that vision. And notice how your body changes and who you become as you are, as you stand on the timeline in your own future as the person who has realized this possibility or this vision in your life and what happens to your body and what happens to your view of yourself and what happens to your identity? Um, What happens to um, you? How have you grown? Right. All, all of that. Um, And when I've done this with clients, It's been very, very powerful for them. It's been very powerful for me when I've done this uh, exercise myself. And um, one of the things that it can create is a touchstone, a felt-sense touchstone, of what it feels like to be the person who has realized that vision. And when you have that felt sense touchstone, and when you can help your client get really familiar with the way the, the tilt of the head or the set of their shoulders or the way their feet feel sort of rooted to the floor, then that can become something that they practice, right? The person who has realized this vision um, has feet that are really rooted to the floor. So every time I walk from my office to the, uh, restroom or every time I, uh, get out of my car and walk to a building, I'm going to feel my feet really rooted to the floor just as a practice of being and becoming the person who has realized that vision.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I love that idea. I love it. Um, makes me think about the kind of spaces that I coach in and, you know, using a space where we can actually do something like that, uh, because I think that imprint that people get from stepping into that, imagine that, that future, the vision, the thing they care about. And then, yeah, the imprint is something that can be practiced and um, a place that they can live from now, you know? Right. So, so I love, I love that you offered that, um, that exercise. I, I, I just noticed, you know, talking about embodiment, I feel, I feel very alive right now talking about these topics, you know, the things that I care about deeply and that light me up too. And I feel also a sense of the, the exploration between us right now. And I'm appreciative of that.
1: Mm, likewise, and thank you for saying so and noticing that. I just, um, yeah, I'm always very inspired by what's possible. When we, when we tune our attention towards life, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Is there anything you would like to share with the listeners? You know, like um, you know, um, piece of advice or wisdom, or even something that's inspired you recently that, that's touched your coaching? You know, like I just I love going a bit left field at the end here before we bring things to a close.
1: Um, I think there's, I think maybe two things are coming to mind and I'm, I'm not sure where I'll go with this, but I, I, I noticed myself like the piece about leadership is really stirring for me. And, um, you know, I tell a lot of stories in, in my book about people who have used embodied practices to change their capacity to lead in a variety of ways. Sometimes that's in a professional way. And sometimes that's just in a personal way towards the end of the book. I, tell a story about a woman who had a a really challenging negotiation with a contractor working on her house and how she used embodied practice to essentially um, build backbone at which she thought she was doing sort of metaphorically. And then, um, you know, wound up in this tough conversation and felt like, no, I showed up with some, you know, I I wasn't spineless as I've been in the past it's so interesting how all of this shows up in our language and that's like a whole other tangent that we could go down because there's been very interesting work by philosophers and linguistics uh linguistics uh whatever they're called linguists um about how embodied experience shows up in our language but all, all of that is just to say like this stuff is inescapable and i think it's really um uh, I think it is one of the important answers to the times that we live in now from a leadership perspective. And I just, I have a longing for people who are in positions of influence to really know themselves more deeply and to be able to tap this intelligence that is um, so rich and alive. so maybe that's all I wanted to say about that, but I just I think the leadership piece is really, really critical. Mm-hmm. Um anything in response to that? And then I, I do have something that's been inspiring me lately.
0: No, go ahead, please. Yeah.
1: Um so speaking to you, you know, today today as we're having this conversation, I'm I'm coming um, from a few days of a, a workshop. With a again a friend and colleague her name is Suzanne Roberts and she teaches um, about polarity principles um, and one of the one of the principles of polarity and and one of the reasons I love studying this work um, of polarity is that it, it feels to me like I get the secrets to life itself it's like oh this is how life functions it doesn't matter if it's functioning in a bird or a tree or me or you know, sort of the the earth itself over time. This is just how life functions. One of the core principles is that um, life is a dynamic movement between two poles. And what we were talking about <clears throat> earlier, you sort of made reference to this—the kind of the spiritual and the material. Right? And we can talk about about the body in very material terms. And frankly, I find it useful to do that. I find it really useful to point to the neurobiological sciences and what they have to say. You know, the interesting research about the ways when we tune into our body, our emotional intelligence strengthens, right? Like that's a factoid that you can use with your clients to help them go, well, this is weird, but maybe there's something to it, right? This is unusual. I'm not used to Uh, this as a a way of learning or as relevant to my leadership, but there's something kind of grounded here. And I think pointing to the science and looking at the role of the body and and behavior and sort of the relationship between those two in a materialist way is enormously helpful for, for all of us in trusting that there's a real intelligence there. And fundamentally, I think this pull of the spiritual, um, the, you know, the movement of life through form or through physicality, I think that's, that's the real game. Um, And that's, you know, as I look towards, all right, so I've published your body is your brain and uh, that's been a long, long journey of research and writing for me and what's next, what's ahead. What I'm really most inspired by these days is looking at that the nature of life, how life moves through physical form and how we just keep getting more and more connected to that and more and more intelligent as a result of our um, connection there. So that's where I'm headed next. Um, I invite you and anyone else along the journey with me. I, I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see um, where that inspiration takes me.
0: Mm. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm also uh, excited to see where that takes you as well. And uh, I imagine we'll be talking about that at some point in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah, this has been fun. I just want to – I think this is a good place to bring our conversation to a close, but I just want to say thank you very much, Amanda. It's been um, – been a lot of fun for me this
1: well for me as well joel i always really really enjoy our conversations and um thanks for making making space for this one
0: always a pleasure where can we find out more about your work
1: um people can find me at mbright.org so that's e-m-b-r-i-g-h-t mbright So it's a obsolete word. I sometimes say, Oh, we're bringing it back, which means, um, essentially to brighten. And I really, you know, as I've been talking about this sort of life force energy moving through the body, um, there's an ancient story about, uh, every living being having some spark of life or spark of the divine in them. If you care to think of it that way, spark of spirit, um, and I really see my um, kind of my, my role on, in this lifetime, my role on this planet as um, helping to light those sparks in me and in others and to brighten those sparks. So that's why I'm bright. And it's mbright.org. Mm. Cool. You find out about the book there yeah. and lots yeah. more courses I teach.
0: I was going to say, of course, the book, book, uh, Your Body Is Your Brain is out as well. recommend people check that out.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. Thanks.
1: Cool. Thanks, Joel. So good to talk.
0: Hello, Joel here again. Just a really quick one to say, I'd love it if you'd share this podcast. Uh, If you want to do so, you're inspired to do so, you can head to coachesrising.com forward slash podcasts on there you'll find the individual podcast pages there's tons of other great ones to listen to Uh, and then on those individual podcast pages you'll find these share buttons you can click that and share it on facebook or linkedin or something like that so yeah i'll be back again very soon and in the meantime be well